Tino Mai, Heidi Mai, Kitene Hotaka. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. I'm Susanna Layar Tower in for Wallace Chapman today. Our panelists, Kelda Dean Hall and Sue Bradford. Wonderful to have you both here. Thanks so much, everyone, for your feedback. It's really, wow, it's just flowing in today. Some votes are through, and the loudest at this point, dark chocolate fans are winning. Is dark chocolate really more popular? Please text 2101. Sue? Dark for me. Dark for Sue. Dean? Milk, but I, 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 dark is better for you. Oh, okay, but you still go with milk. I do. Okay, I'll reserve my judgment at this point. And on the topic of maths, uh, this conversation one texter says about maths feels a bit like telling dyslexics they just need to try harder. Mm. Okay, and scooters, London scooters, your credit card payment is not finalised until you send a photo of your properly parked scooter. Thank you, Conrad. Conrad on Waiheke with that suggestion. And another suggestion here, scooters could be fitted with alarms that buzz or ring at riders who leave them lying on the ground. Or like a bus pass, could keep charging your credit card, mm, same tone, until properly parked. Great. Look, thanks for that and keep them coming. A specific mental health option when people call 111 has been floated by the Minister of Mental Health, Matt Ducey. Minister Ducey was responding to police saying health services need to step up. Police are dealing with thousands of mental distress call-outs each year, which are getting in the way of fighting crime. Joining us now is Karen Osborne from Te Hiringa Mahara Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission. Tēnā koe, Karen. Uh, kia ora, Susanna. Thank you for having me on it's the programme. Great to have you on the programme this afternoon. Thank you. Now, could you take us through how a multi-agency mental health option on a 111 call would work? Uh, look, I just want to um, split out a couple of things, the multi-agency response and 111s. Um, but first off, just to say that we know that the demand for mental health and addiction services has grown, and this has put a lot of pressure on the system, including police. Um, and so we do need to look at new ways of supporting people, and we are really pleased to see that our First Minister for Mental Health is open to looking at different ways of providing those services. Um, so we want to see better access for, to support for people in crisis, and um the 111 system at the moment gives um, people the option of police, ambulance or fire, and the suggestion is to add a mental health um, option in there. Now, at the moment, people can um, choose to go into the one, um, 1737 line, which is a telehealth service. Um, so that's one part of it. And the other part is to add that multi-agency response, which is what we're seeing through the co-response service that's operating in Wellington, which is a mental health service um, person, um, somebody from the ambulance service and someone from police working together to understand what um, the person's needs are and how they can be best supported. So that's happening already with the 737 option. But if you're calling 111 and you don't necessarily have any details about what's happening... How soon would a mental health option be available and how different would that be to what you're suggesting is av- or saying is available right now? Look, I think there's a lot of detail to be worked through and it's um, uh, understanding what are we, what's the underlying issue here and what's the best response to that. So um, when people are in crisis, and, and of course we want people to have access to services far earlier in the course of their distress so that they don't actually get into that crisis point. So how can we look at other types of services um, much earlier um, and yeah, avoid that scenario? 
so um, I think we need to understand what what's the issues in, in the system at the moment with people not being able to access services, getting to that point where they're in crisis, how do we intervene earlier, as well as look at um, how that any new system would work. And I think it's really important that we talk to the people who use these services and say um, what services would best meet their needs, what would work for them. And we know that um, in some parts across the system, we've got more peer support workers, more cultural workers who can work alongside people um, who are experiencing distress, then that's a really good option. So um, it's just not jumping to the, this is the solution, it's how do we understand what's happening and then what might work in a, in a, in a different way. What are your thoughts, Sue? Um, it's hard to imagine at the moment. Um, in an ideal world, yes, it would be great. But with mental health services for um, adults and for young people alike, just so under-resourced and inadequate at the moment, so few places for people to go to be, to be safe and to be looked after. Um, it's really hard to imagine how something like this could possibly be adequately resourced and work, and work for people who are in extreme distress themselves or for other people who are around them and are very concerned about what's going on whether for their own or for other people's safety. Um, this is really serious stuff. And, and of course, uh, the, the more professional and better the mental health response, that's that would be great. So go for it, Minister. But, boy, you'd need a much bigger mental health workforce in many more um, groups and um, physical locations behind this than what exists at the moment, I think. What do you have to say to that, Karen? How well resourced are we for what the minister is floating, the mental health option on the 111 calling system? Yeah, look, workforce is a huge challenge for mental health services at the moment, and we have seen um, investment um, into services, particularly uh, community primary care-based services through the Access and Choice Programme, the Budget 19 investment. Um, But that rollout and scale-up has been constrained by the availability of workforce. So there needs to be um, a clear view on what the services are and what is the workforce that's needed and plans and investment put in place so that um, that those um, people are available to actually staff the services. So yeah, workforce is a huge challenge. And what I'd also say is that services don't work in isolation. So it's understanding if we make this particular change, what's the flow and effect to other services? Um, and ha- how can we... Um, think about new ways of doing things, but also strengthen the existing services that we have. So strengthen the existing Kelly House digital um, services, um, look at rolling out the co-response model that's also in place in Wellington and other locations around the country. So it's, yeah, it's looking at one part of it, but also the other parts and how they all interact together. You're a systems man, Dean, a computer man specifically. Uh, and, and actually, that was going to be my question. So I'm, I'm guessing uh, a lot of this is around categorization and cutting down that time to getting someone dealing with the issue. I've unfortunately had to call 111 for a bunch of different things. And I can always tell the the operator and say you call and you get put through to police and they're going to then put you through, through potentially as well. It's about cutting down that time about what help do you actually need and when. And so I'm, I'm guessing, am I correct in thinking that's really what the core of this proposal is, is trying to categorise that as quickly as possible, and that's sort of the first step at that acute end. Um, is that right? Look, it's about people getting access to the services that are 
a right for them as well. So mm. we know that um, the police aren't necessarily um, the best response. Um, you know, people who are extremely distressed, um, you know, the police might not be the most uh, calming response uh, mm. for people. So we know that people um, who have been through that journey themselves would say to us, actually, um, you know, the police may not be that best option. So how can we look at other options, which is like um, mental health professionals, um, the co-response model, which has ambulance in there as well. So, yeah, I think it's the let's not get to that crisis end if we if we can avoid it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when we do, then what is the best option um, and pathway available for people? A couple of things, Karen. A text has just uh, made contact. I have family with mental health issues and they've not heard of the 737 number before. Did you say that was specifically for Wellington? No, that's a national, that's part of the National Telehealth Service. Okay, there we go. 737 and that's... 1737. One, one, sorry, 1737. 1737. And could you just clarify who can who can use that number? Oh, it's um, it's a service. It's twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. It's widely promoted, um, and it's anybody can access it. It's a free service. So, just to finish, Karen, and thank you for just the, the the degree of information you've given us. When we hear that the Minister for Mental Health, Matt Ducey, is floating this idea, and people get their hopes up, and it's in response to the police saying, "Listen, we can't deal with these thousands of calls. It's getting in the way of us doing our core business or part of our core business, fighting crime." What's your response to that? Oh, look, um, we look at um, the calls that are categorised as mental health related. They can uh, relate to a wide range of, of different issues. So they can be people who are extremely distressed, but they can also be people who have social issues, so housing, welfare, other, other related issues. Um, and there's no doubt that... Um, uh, you know, police looking at um, their capacity and where they're spending the time and calling for more of a health response. Um, and it's then saying, OK, what does that response need to look like? Um, how can we strengthen our existing services, um, look at new services like the co-response model and really then uh, other ways that the system could be enhanced to support those people in distress? Thank you, Karen. Good speaking with you this afternoon. That's Karen Osborne. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great. From Te Hiranga Mahara, that's the Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission. It's 18 and a half minutes past four. This is the panel, RNZ National. A group representing more than 9,000 doctors in New Zealand has written to the Prime Minister, urging the government to change its mind on ditching smoking reform. The government's planning to repeal the Smoke-Free Environments and Regulated Products Smoked Tobacco Amendment Act 2022. Now, that's the act that was intended to take cigarettes out of most dairies, lower nicotine levels in cigarettes, and deny sales of cigarettes to anyone born after January 1st, 2009. The Council of Medical Colleges represents doctors from 34 specialties. The Council's joined with the Māori Medical Practitioners Association and Health Coalition Aotearoa to make this formal request in writing. The chairperson of the Council of Medical Colleges, Dr Samantha Merton, joins us now. Tēnākwe, Samantha. Tēnākwe. So you're one of the organisers, a signatory on this letter. Who received this letter? So this went to the Prime Minister and to the Ministers of Health, the variety of various Ministers of Health, and also to the Chair of the Health Select Committee. Briefly, take us through what the 9,000-plus doctors want the government to do. 
Well, what we're concerned about is the repeal of the Act when we didn't know that this was something that was on the agenda, and also that there is... Um, if it's done under urgency, then there will be no chance for anyone to have a conversation or debate about what parts of the Act need to be changed and what the new process would be if this Act does take, get repealed completely. How bad are the consequences of repealing the smoke-free legislation? Well, it would be a tragedy if we took away the smoke-free generation. And I think, you know, for a lot of um, communities, that was a key element to this act. I think the other thing is reducing nicotine levels so that the addictive nature of cigarettes is not there, taking them out of dairies where they're not close to schools or to other places where young people can get um, access to them and uh, all factors that are really important in making sure that we reduce the people who start smoking in the first place. And... um, if we allow that to be repealed, then we're taking a completely, a huge backward step. Yeah. Dean, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, unfortunately, a couple of the questions I had were just answered then, but it's, it's hard for me. So I, I don't drink even alcohol. So, so for me, I'd be like, I, I think alcohol causes a lot of damage in that. Mm-hmm. But I also, at the same time, I'm, I'm very much a proponent of I don't like driving stuff underground, like with you know mar- marijuana and, and other drugs and that, because I think sometimes that causes harm. So I get some of those points, but I, I really like, and you kind of answered my question, which was around um, you don't want to have it near the kids but you you want to reduce access so does it feel like they're going too far and doing it under urgency is means that that doesn't get to identified is that the point i think it's the fact that we don't have any chance to debate what parts of it we think would be effective and that what parts of it that the government thinks need to change so if we take it all out then we're sort of starting from square one and what we'd like to say is a lot of these things have been well thought through, there's a lot of evidence behind them and they should be staying in place but then there's some other things that could be debated that we would think about shifting. So it's the debate that we need to have. So what do you make of this? Um, As a former MP, I think um, the doctors, um, including Dr Merton here, are absolutely right that it's a repugnant use of parliamentary processes. First of all, as you say, the government did not, uh, the National Party and others didn't say this is what they were going to do, so people didn't know they were voting for this. Second, that they're not giving, they're trying to do it under urgency, so there's no select committee process, and select committees are always the place where parties from across the House, plus all the people that come and submit, the knowledgeable people like like doctors, can come in and you can ameliorate or improve legislation, even if the government wants to go in a in a crook direction like this one does. Um, at least you can try and ameliorate it or try and work out some compromise. But what they're doing is no compromise. We're just going to do it. Um, they appear to be um, listening only to big tobacco. And it's such a tragedy that we... We've gone from being a progressive country to try and move towards smoke-free as fast and as clearly as we can to actually being to going in the opposite direction. Um, anyway, good on you for, for making such a strong stand. Samantha, you know, the government says it's committed to reducing tobacco use and that they'll make education programmes available and encourage vaping as a cessation tool. Why isn't this enough? Well, I think there's a lot of evidence that... Um, these things are very small in their impact and what we need to do is do some things that are really big in their impact. And saying that you cannot sell to people who have been born after 2009 is a really, just sends a message that, you know, as a country, we don't want people to be addicted to nicotine or to tobacco or smoking. And 
there are options for people now. So even if we're talking about they're driving it into the underground, there will still be nicotine available, but in a lesser dose, hopefully, in vaping. And there are still nicotine gum options. And what we'd really like is not to have anyone addicted in the first place. So there's the evidence behind the measures which we need to focus on. And some of them have got really good evidence that that's what we should be doing. So the letter's gone out... More than 9,000 doctor's signatures on the letters. What happens next? Um, So we wait to hear back from uh, the um, ministers and see what they are going to say. We would probably follow it up with a conversation with any of them who are willing to have a conversation with us. And we are meeting as a council in the next few months. But but also, I don't know whether Te Ora or um, House Coalition Aotearoa have also got actions that they will be doing. But all of us are working together to make sure that we have a conversation about this rather than it just going through without that discussion. Thanks so much for your time today, Samantha. Thank you. Pleasure. That's the chairperson of the Council of Medical Colleges, Dr Samantha Merton. Okay, favourite chocolate. Just seeing our results here, it's still the dark chocolate lovers are coming in thick and fast, and I just I'm quite surprised by that because I am with you, Dean, and the milk chocolate stinks. I'm even worse. Do you want to know what my real favourite is? Yeah, go on. White chocolate, and I know it's ah, not even chocolate. See, I gave it as a separate. Your, I your did. text I now did. will just be scrolling down with uh, with with madness at that. Yeah. So you're I, like, I like the, white... you're the Milky Bar Kid. It's yeah. really what you're revealing to us. Yeah. And so you, I think I suspect you suspected that. Right, it's not a surprise to Just you. Just looking at Dean, yeah, he'll go, he'll do with the milk. I, I, it's true. Milky Bar Kid only eats what's right, right? We, we'll leave that there. Um, yeah, I, he, we're talking about chocolate in the next half of the panel, and um, but I thought we could take a poll, a panel poll, because we all know how scientifically accurate that is. Um, and, yeah, we'll see what happens. I don't know, maybe everyone's done their dash. I'm surprised, though. I think we could have more milk chocolate lovers, and even as you've given permission, Dean, for white chocolate lovers to come forward. And and let's see, uh, good authority, apparently we have on good authority, that Wellingtonians tend toward dark chocolate. Do you think this is something you picked up when you were in the beehive, Sue? No. <laughs> No. No. And the Aucklanders favour milk chocolate. That's, Goodness, that seems strange. Yeah, well, I think people need to make their case to 101 or emails. The panel at rnz.co.nz. Sue Bradford, it's Valentine's Day tomorrow. Would dark chocolate woo you? <laughs> Could do. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Dean? Uh, milk chocolate. But, do, you know, it's very hard. The, the cool thing about chocolate is how immersed it is with our history of civilization and cocoa and how difficult it is to make chocolate. There's actually a fascinating story around how chocolate came to America. Um, uh, like in companies at the company level, I, I listened to a really interesting podcast on it. So it's a fascinating topic, chocolate, full of conflict and and problems and other things. So it's a really interesting topic. Well, in the next half hour, we will be talking about the price of cocoa and whether or not that's actually going to impact the price of chocolate here. And we'll see. We'll find out. But I am curious as to how chocolate arrived here but no one in the room seems to know. We're all sort of going, mm, who cares? Just I'm as long curious as it about leave. Whether, whether anyone's ever tried to grow it here, Kikau, mm. to grow it in this country. Like how I was so astonished one time when I found people were growing rice here. You know, sometimes people grow products mm. here that we don't expect.
Exactly. I remember getting excited to discover that bananas grew, obviously because I grew up in Wellington where I don't believe there are any bananas growing in the, in the wild. But it's so exciting when you do see bananas growing here and further north. White chocolate, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I told you, I told you. <laughs> I'm going to get escorted out of the building soon. Yes, you just might. And, of course, quite a few votes for Whitaker's Dark, so that's really nice. But I wanted to come back to some of the feedback that we've been having. Uh, on being a maths person... Uh, maths is typically right or wrong. Um, this complicates confidence and maths relevance day to day is important. Also, sometimes people become good at maths at 25 rather than, say, 10 to 12. Did either of you find that, that you discovered? Sorry, I'm just, I'm so passionate about this topic. I really think a lot of it comes down to context. Like, I see people all the time say, oh, I never use trigon- trigonometry. I use trigonometry all the time. If you want to move something in a computer game, you need trigonometry. Like, you need physics, you need maths is how you talk to the computer to get it to run its simulation and do stuff. So context, I think, and telling. So whenever we have kids in, I try and tell them. I'm like, absorb some maths. You don't have to absorb all of it, but you need to be able to understand it to be able to tell the computer to do what it needs. I love it. And here's a big shout-out to Kushla Thompson, maths teacher at Wellington College, who does great YouTube videos explaining Mm. maths concepts. Now, uh, Carol in Greytown, I agree with Sue. My 23-year-old son has applied for dozens of jobs. He doesn't even get the courtesy of reply, even when he gets an interview. His last interview he felt went very well. They told him he would hear within the week. There has been no acknowledgement or reply, even when he emailed after the said week. It's so distressing to see how despondent this makes him. That's right. And for anyone that's been unemployed um, for any length of time at any time in their lives, as I have been, it is one of the worst experiences ever. It doesn't matter how old you are, what who you are, what your background is, um, that sense of just ongoing rejection at the same time as if you have this assumption from the from MSD, from the government, that it's all your fault because you can't get a job or they think it's because you don't want a job. And often people are just absolutely desperate to get a job. And um, so that's why it's so our welfare system is so cruel and the kind of attitudes that are being promulgated at the moment. Now, on your I've Been Thinking, Dean, we'll quickly squeeze this in. Thank you, Marama, for waiting a moment with the headlines. I used scooters in Lyon last year during the Rugby World Cup. They don't let you log off the app until it's in a designated parking mm. location and a photo taken of it there. Uh, so you park it in one of these places or it's free for someone else to take and do whatever they want with. Hmm. And then just to finish there, scooters in Wellington are a nightmare. I hate them with a passion. The footpaths are too narrow. The riders just eyeball the pedestrians and go for it. Try being an older person with a couple of preschoolers. Hate them. And that's Jilly in Wellington. Jilly, thanks for getting in touch. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.